Monday, everyone. Welcome to the Colby Daniels Podcast, presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products. You can visit the website, abotanicalcompany.com, or give them a call, 405-458-9699. Educate yourself on their line of natural medicine products and how they can benefit your life daily. Ask questions. Uh, They're more than helpful as far as the staff, and, and they're extremely knowledgeable and their mission is to help you live a better life. So again, check them out. Local people, local ownership, doing great things for the community around them. Artisan Botanicals, abotanicalcompany.com. You can order online, easy and safe pickup, abotanicalcompany.com, or give them a call, 405-458-9699. All right, hope everybody had a great weekend, uh, big weekend of college football, and obviously we are on the home stretch. Both Oklahoma and Iowa State have punched their tickets to the Big 12 championship game in Arlington in just a couple weeks. Excited about that rematch, and when you look at how well Iowa State is playing down the stretch of this season and the improvements that Oklahoma has made uh, down the stretch of the season, obviously we'll talk about the Baylor game and the hiccups there, uh, but Oklahoma gets it done. They get a win. That's going to be a big matchup in Arlington in just a couple weeks. Sooners still have to get past West Virginia as far as the big picture goes, but uh, a couple games left for Oklahoma, and uh, we'll see where they land. As for Oklahoma State, uh, I I don't know that you can say it any other way than disappointing 2020 football season for the Cowboys. This was a year where coming into the season, there were expectations of competing for a conference championship, potentially winning a conference championship. I know a year ago, There was the thought that maybe this team was good enough to compete on a national level uh, when you considered the star power and the defensive improvement and veteran quarterback, you know, all of those elements that you generally need to be that type of football team. It kind of seemed like going into the year, Oklahoma State had all of those boxes checked. Uh, Fast forward to this point in the year, and it's a three-loss football team that all of a sudden we're asking questions about the maturity and development of a starting quarterback that's been around for a while. Uh, You're looking at key players obviously not being in the mix. The offensive line has been a disaster all year long. And a defense that's been great most of the season, but obviously can't do it alone. So uh, I think this is a a big-time disappointment for Oklahoma State. And I think it's really interesting when you start having the conversation about Mike Gundy, the job that he's done, and the criticism of Mike Gundy, because criticism is as simple as saying he's done a bad job or he's done a good job. I, I think you have to look at this in layers. And, and on the top layer, you look at the, the entire body of work and what the program was when Mike Gundy took the keys, where it is today, the winning percentage, the number of wins, all of that, everything he's accomplished over the last 16 years. And I think it's it's... Absolutely true that not only is he the best coach in program history, but he's done an outstanding job as far as what he's done over the course of 16 years. I don't think anybody is even disputing that. Where the criticism comes into play is, I I think, basically over the last decade, in 2011, they have their best team that they've ever had. They are one maybe field goal away from potentially winning a national championship. I mean, that team, I think, was that good that they would have competed and and potentially won a national title, which is crazy to think about. The problem is what's happened since then, it kind of felt like there was a failure to capitalize off of that momentum. And when you start having the conversation about the job Mike Gundy has done from that point on, the reality is the best season they've had, and they've done it four times, 10-3. and 3. 
Now, nobody is arguing that 10-3 and three is a terrible season. In fact, there are a lot of schools that praise 10-win seasons. 10 wins in a season is absolutely an achievement. And, and again, nobody is arguing that a 10-3 and three season is a disaster. But when you look at Mike Gundy's overall resume, he's lost three games in a season in 14 of his 16 years at Oklahoma State. And he hasn't lost less than three games in a season since 2011. So we're talking about nine straight years where three losses is the best you've done. So again, there's nothing wrong with a three-loss season. If you go 10-3, and that's not a bad thing. Where the criticism comes into play is the fact that since 2011, a three-loss season is your peak. That is your peak accomplishment. So that's where I think there's the breakdown between the that's where there's the breakdown between the Gundy critics and the people that defend him. I, you know, I think most people overall would agree he's done a tremendous job, but this is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately sport, and over the last nine years, 10-3 and three is the very best, and if you don't have an expectation to do any better than that, then you're set. You have nothing to complain about, and you're right where you want to be. But I can't imagine there are people out there that think this is the expectation for what this 2020 Oklahoma State team should have accomplished. I can't imagine there were people in 2017 with that Mason Rudolph group that thought they accomplished everything they should have accomplished. I I would even go back to 2013 when Oklahoma State had an opportunity to win another Big 12 championship and lost in Stillwater to to an Oklahoma team that plays three quarterbacks. They end up losing their bowl game as well. That was a 10-3 and football team. You can't convince me that that was a team that reached its highest level. So, once again, the criticism isn't that Mike Gundy has done a bad job. The criticism is that there has been a failure for this Oklahoma State team to reach its peak multiple times over the last nine years. I go back to a lot of conversations we had during Bedlam Week about expectations with Oklahoma State and this idea that Mike Gundy should beat the Sooners every other year or something like that, which is absurd. The same thing is true of of their collective football season. I don't think anybody expects that Oklahoma State is going to win a Big 12 championship every year or even compete for a Big 12 championship every year. But over the course of a nine-year period, there should be opportunities where you put yourself in that position. And when you do, you have to capitalize on those. And there's been a failure to capitalize. So, Again, three-loss season is the peak accomplishment for what Mike Gundy and Oklahoma State has been over the last nine years since that incredible 2011 season. So if you're, in the, if you're on the side of things that wants more, then you have every right to be upset about where the program is and, once again, the failure to capitalize on a team that has a chance to make a run. The other part of this that I think is interesting, and I, I want to have this conversation, I'm not saying that Oklahoma State should fire Mike Gundy, and I'm not even suggesting it. But there seems to be this idea that if Oklahoma State were to do that, number one, the guy you get is not going to have success. And and none of us really know the answer to that. Is it possible that they step down and, and make a bad hire and the guy just completely crashes this program? Sure, that's always a possibility. Is it also possible to bring in a guy like a Matt Campbell or, look, Lincoln Riley for that matter that had no head coaching experience and is a rock star at his job? That's, that's also a possibility. So I, I think it's foolish to just assume that no matter who you hire, the hire is going to be a failure. But the other foolish part, I think, with this conversation becomes 
that no matter who you get, if they have success, they're automatically going to leave Stillwater. And the, the, the one thing I always hear, the one thing that's always referenced when you talk about replacing Mike Gundy and having a coach that ends up having success, everybody wants to go back to the Les Miles situation and say, well, if you start having success the way Les Miles had success, the guy's going to be out the door in a couple years. Well, first of all, let's, let's break this down a little bit. If you get a guy in any job outside of the top 10 jobs in the country, if LSU calls you, you're probably leaving. So I don't think that's necessarily an Oklahoma State thing as much as that is just a college football thing. There are premier jobs in this sport that if one of those jobs calls you and you're not currently employed with one of those jobs, you're absolutely listening. Gundy might be one of the rare exceptions, but let's not pretend that Gundy hasn't flirted with some other job opportunities as well. But if Alabama, LSU, Ohio State, USC, Notre Dame, I mean, there are Texas, Michigan, I think is probably in that group. LSU is absolutely in that group. There are schools, Florida, there are schools in college football that no matter how much you love the program you're at or how well you've done, you're going to listen to the conversation. But going back to the Les Miles argument, even if it wasn't LSU and it was somebody else that was able to sway Les Miles away from Stillwater, let's evaluate where the football program was and what the football program was. It wasn't a winning program. It wasn't a school that had had any sort of long stretch of success. It wasn't a name program. The facilities were by no means state-of-the-art. And you fast-forward to 2020, and, and again... Les kind of jump-started this and got the momentum going and the injection of $165 million or whatever that number was, financial injection into the football program makes a difference. And then this is where Mike Gundy, again, gets a ton of credit for the job he's done. If this job were to open up, it's a completely different situation than it was when Les Miles left. It's a much more known commodity. The facilities are incredibly better and you have a better chance to not only win football games immediately, but but to potentially sustain success. Again, not trying to suggest that Mike Gundy should be fired, but I think we need to really evaluate where this football program is versus where it was if we're going to have that conversation and start making the less miles leaving Stillwater comparisons because it's just apples to oranges at this point than what it was. And, and again, Mike Gundy, when you look at the 16-year career and the winning percentages and everything that he's done... Oklahoma State is one of the most successful college football programs of the last decade. There's no arguing that. I just think in terms of setting the bar somewhere and trying to accomplish goals, it should be set a little bit higher than 10-3 and being the best season you've had in the last nine years since you peaked in 2011. And that's really where the discussion begins. Do you think Mike Gundy is the guy to get back to that 2011 type of product, or do you think what we've watched over the last nine years, where again, four times he's been 10 and three, but that's also been the peak. Is that just what they are and what they're going to be? I don't know a single Oklahoma State Cowboy fan going into this season that would have been okay with a three loss year, especially in a year where Oklahoma loses their opening two conference games and from an experience standpoint and a playmaker standpoint, Oklahoma State was, if not in the driver's seat, right behind Oklahoma to start the season. I mean, I had them number two in my preseason poll and thought that at least the expectation should be a Big 12 championship appearance. Not saying they win it, 
but at least put themselves in that position. And once again, a shortcoming. As far as the game on Saturday against TCU, 29-22 TCU wins. This was such an odd game, first of all. To win the turnover battle 5-1 to one and lose the game is just one of the craziest stats that, that there is. I mean, it's almost as crazy as Oklahoma not getting to 300 yards. In fact, being outgained in yardage by the Baylor Bears and winning. I mean, that's that's exactly what this is. If you tell me Baylor is going to outgain Oklahoma offensively, then I'm, I'm telling you Baylor probably wins the game. If you tell me that Oklahoma State is going to win the turnover battle over TCU 5-1, to one, I tell you Oklahoma State not only wins, but they win big. So the fact that they lost this game, considering that, is shocking. But, you know, it goes back to offensive line issues at being the first and foremost issue with this Oklahoma State team. And then you go down a step and, and you have to start having the conversation or maybe continuing to have the conversation about Spencer Sanders and where his development is. Is he the guy for this Oklahoma State football program going forward? And, you know, to be fair to Spencer Sanders, I think the offensive line has been so detrimental to what this offense has been able to accomplish Part of this isn't his fault, and part of this might be unfair to, to completely judge his progression throughout this year. But there's no doubt there have been issues with Spencer Sanders, uh, especially in the passing game. Uh, but I, again, I'm not sure anybody has a ton of success in this offense, considering what the offensive line has been. And you look at the playmakers for Oklahoma State. I mean, there are, there are weeks that you just wonder how on earth all these playmakers that they have offensively don't have monster numbers. But I would say this about the quarterback position. I don't think there's any question that going into next year, there will be a quarterback battle. I don't think by any means this is a guarantee for one guy or the other. The one thing you still have to like about Spencer Sanders is the fact that from a tool standpoint, he has the tools to be successful. It's not like this is a guy that, uh, you know, is just hoping that, the light bulb comes on and, and that he'll just be a game manager. I mean, he has the tools to be special if he gets to that po that point mentally. But, you know, again, we're talking about a guy that is now on campus for his third year, and it's, it's not really happening at the pace you would like to see it happen. And I think you go back to the year in 2018 where there was a failure to, I think, start that process, and that is also part of the equation. All right, let's talk Oklahoma football. Big win over Baylor, 27-14 on Saturday night. A lot like the Oklahoma State TCU game, this was a wild, bizarre football game to watch. Baylor misses two field goals in their opening two drives. You just kind of felt like for a, a portion of this game, especially early, that Oklahoma was, was lucky to be ahead. And then there was a big gap from like the second quarter into the third quarter until really the, the Twyquan. Tyquan Thornton touchdown catch where you felt like Oklahoma was was in so much control, especially after the defense had settled down and that defensive line had started to dominate the game, that Oklahoma was was going to figure it out. They were going to score again, if not a couple more times, and Baylor was going to have a hard time climbing in back into this thing. I know the, the Tyquan Thornton touchdown from a, a scoreboard standpoint put this thing within 10, but it still felt, with how good that defense was playing, it still felt like a 10-point lead was a big stretch for Baylor to be able to overcome. And then you add the the touchdown in the third quarter by Oklahoma to to extend the lead. And that was really all she wrote. It, it just it it was game over at that point. But that defensive line has been unbelievable. 
you know, I've said, going back to the Texas game, when they completely dominated the Texas Longhorns for three and a half quarters, that we were seeing signs of something that we hadn't seen in a long time. And it was, I think, disappointing for a lot of Sooner fans watching that Texas game to see how well the defense played for three and a half quarters. And then the coaching staff to basically stop them from being aggressive, to go into that three-man prevent defense when Texas really, like, over doubled their entire offensive production from from the seven minute mark of the fourth quarter on. Uh, so you know that was really the first time for me this football season to to see a glimpse of that defense and what it could be. Obviously, all year long, guys like Isaiah Thomas and Perry on Winfrey have been standouts, but you add Ronnie Ronnie Perkins to that mix, best player defensively for Oklahoma. And they have one of the best defensive lines in all of college football. I said in the pregame show on Saturday, I don't know how good the back seven is for, for Oklahoma. It doesn't really matter when your front four is as dominant as Oklahoma's has been. So that's the good thing. I know they've been ravaged by uh, bodies as far as their secondary and the guys that they have available to play. But they're getting through and they continue to play a, a brand of football that we haven't seen in Norman for a long time, especially on that side of the football. Spencer Rattler had a really interesting game, and and look, he's been terrific since he came back into the Texas game, and, and he's really looked like a different guy, I think, just in terms of how comfortable he is in the offense, not panicking when things break down, just feeling like he's in complete control of the offense, and also understanding that the ceiling is so high and there's still so much room for him to grow that it's only going to get better and better. But I thought Saturday night was the first time since the early stages of the Texas game where you kind of felt like, although it wasn't bad nearly to the degree that it was in the Texas game, that you felt like maybe Spencer Rattler was uh, a little uneasy, that he wasn't in complete control and that he didn't feel completely comfortable back there. But that said, I mean, it was still a solid game from Spencer Rattler. 20 of 28 throwing the football. He never made the the gigantic mistake that could have potentially put Oklahoma in that spot to, to lose the game, and that's the good thing. I know he threw the interception. Um, you know, it's funny how the interception thing worked because the interception that he threw early in the game shouldn't have been an interception, right? That that hits Ramondre Stevens, Stevenson right in the hands and bounces in the air, and a Baylor player ends up with the ball. And, you know, again, not a Spencer Rattler issue, uh, just bad luck, essentially. And then you get the one late where he throws it right to the Baylor football player, and it bounces off the Baylor guy's hands. And I think it was Braden Willis catches the deflection for a touchdown. So if you ever wanted proof that the football gods exist, there it is. First quarter, throw to Ramondre Stevenson, should have been a catch and maybe a touchdown, bounces off of his hands, intercepted late in the game guaranteed interception thrown right to the Baylor player, bounces off of his hands and into a Sooner's hands for a touchdown. So there you go. The interception that was an interception should have been a touchdown. The touchdown that was a touchdown should have been an interception. So it all evened out at the end. But like I said, uh, you know, he's going to make mistakes. He's a young guy. Um, He's not done throwing interceptions on the season or in his career. It's still going to happen. Uh, But, you know, I think you you can live with one of those a game uh, and, and especially not in a moment where potentially it costs you the game. You know, the score's tied with two minutes left. I mean, that's that's the, the good part is, uh, you know, he didn't commit the big mistake that, that, that really gave Baylor an opportunity to climb back into it. As I mentioned earlier, it's crazy to me that Oklahoma won a football game that was led by the defense. I mean, none of us anticipated 
two years ago that it was even possible to win a football game if you didn't get the very best from the offense. And if you tell most people, even in 2020, with this defense being as good as it is, that you're going to win a football game in which the other team has more yardage than you, that seems crazy. If you tell an Oklahoma fan that you're going to win a football game when you don't even get to 300 total yards, that seems crazy. But that's the case. And, and again, I think you have to just give it up to this Oklahoma defense for how well they've played. I pulled up the numbers today in terms of just evaluating the improvement that we've seen from this group over the last three seasons. Because when you go back to the final year of Mike Stoops and everything that was going wrong with that defense and you add Alex Grinch into the mix in 2019, here are the defensive numbers over the last three seasons for this Oklahoma defense. And this is just pretty incredible for the job that Alex Grinch has done. If you need proof as to whether or not there is improvement with this defense, here it is. So Oklahoma defensive rankings going back to 2018, which was the final year as with Mike Stoops as the defensive coordinator. 2019, the first year of Alex Grinch. And then 2020, obviously this year with Alex Grinch in season number two in Norman. Total defense rankings in 2018 under Mike Stoops, they ranked 114 of 130 teams in college football. They were absolutely atrocious. And in year one, I mean, this is this goes back to a year ago when we talked about all the improvement that we saw on the football field defensively with Alex Grinch at the helm. We saw it all season long. And then I think the biggest issue was that they got on the national stage against the, the LSU Tigers, one of the best offenses that college football has ever seen. And while they were much improved, there were still some pretty massive holes. And what did LSU do? Like any good football team that has incredible weapons, they capitalized on a lot of those those big issues for Oklahoma's secondary. So I, I think that game and that score and watching LSU towards that defense uh, erased a lot of the goodwill that had been built throughout the 2019 season for Alex Grinch. But total defense, 114 in 2018, 38 in 2019, and in 2020, they ranked number 14 in total defense. So they've jumped 100 spots in two seasons from 2018 to 2020, from 114 to 14 in a two-year span in total defense. Scoring defense, three years ago, they ranked number 101 of 130. Last year, 64. This year, 30. Again, that's a 71-point jump in terms of where they rank in college football. All right, next, a couple of, of statistical categories that I've identified over the last couple of years as being really important for Oklahoma and the fact that, that they've been as bad as they've been. We'll start with third down defense because third down defense has been really, really bad as well, especially in the Mike Stoops era. It kind of felt like for as good as Oklahoma would play on first and second down, they would always give up the, the first down or give up the big play touchdown on a third down. Like, I don't know a single Sooner fan who's been excited about the third down defense. I think most Oklahoma fans, like you get to third down and that's when they know the big play is happening. So 2018, third down defense ranked number 119 in the country of 130 teams. Only 11 teams were worse than Oklahoma in third down defense in 2018. Massive jump again from 2018 to 2019 under Alex Grinch. They go from 119 to 17, 102 spots in a year. And this year, all of a sudden, they're elite, number five in the country in third down defense. They're f the fifth best team in college football in third down defense from 119 two years ago. Red zone touchdown defense is also an interesting category because we talked about this, and, and this was important mostly because the defense was so bad and the offense was so good 
our expectation for the defense was so minimal that I started saying, if you just turn one or two of these red zone possessions into field goals instead of touchdowns, you're talking about Oklahoma winning games comfortably. That's how good the Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray offenses were, that if you just turned one or two possessions in a game that, that hit the red zone from a touchdown to a field goal, you're talking about a massive swing. So a statistic that I kind of monitored during that period was red zone touchdown defense. Oklahoma in 2018 was dead last, the worst defense in college football in the red zone at giving up touchdowns. That's an unbelievable number, and there is no reason. Not only should that not be a Power 5 school ranked 130, but that shouldn't be a blue blood by any means. So, again, red zone defense was the worst in college football, and if you turn a couple possessions into field goals instead of touchdowns, Oklahoma's drastically better in, in the Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray era. But 132 years ago, Small jump a year ago to 99. This year they ranked 53. So again, massive jump in just the two-year period going from basically getting completely run over every time the opponent is in the red zone to at least putting up a fight and forcing more threes or even getting turnovers for that matter, which leads us to the next statistical category. Alex Grinch got here. He preached turnovers a year ago. I think everybody was like, okay, man, like, this isn't working. It's it's basically the same non-turnover producing defense. But in year number two, it's it's been the complete opposite. In 2018, Oklahoma ranked number 121 in college football at creating turnovers. Last year, they also ranked number 121 in college football at creating turnovers. This year, they are 38th. Massive jump in terms of just the numbers from where they were last year to what they're accomplishing on the football field statistically this year, they're getting takeaways, and it shows in the ranking. You know, the other part of this that, that's interesting is the fact that they've created 13 turnovers in nine games this year. Last year, in 14 games, they created 11 turnovers. The year before that, in 14 games, they created 11. They have two more in nine games this year than the last two seasons. So uh, that's been one of the big changes, and we obviously saw that against Baylor on Saturday night, a couple of big interceptions. And then sacks, not that this was ever a big issue. Uh, it it might have been a big issue when you start talking about critical moments and not being able to pressure the quarterback going back to like the third down numbers. But in 2018, they ranked 49th in college football in sacks. Big jump to 2019, they ranked 21st. And this year, once again, you start talking about that group being among the elite in college football. In 2020, they ranked fourth in sacks. That defensive line is getting after the quarterback. Not only are they getting pressure regularly and dominating the line of scrimmage, but they're getting home also. Sometimes sacks aren't necessarily a great indicator as to how much pressure you're getting because if you're creating pressure, but you're not getting the quarterback and he's throwing the ball away, for example, you don't get you don't get credit for, or at least it doesn't show up in that category as far as how good you are in that group. But they are getting home this year and, and they're creating sacks. So they're number four in the country in sacks. Again, just a, a remarkable jump in all of these categories from Alex Grinch in year number two compared to what they were in Mike Stoops' final season in Norman in 2018. So I just I wanted to bring up these numbers because, you know, I said this about the Baylor game. You know, a couple years ago, it would have been no question in anybody's mind that if you didn't get a good offensive performance, there was no way you were going to win a game. And now not only are you getting good performances by the defense, uh, when the offense doesn't play well, but the defense led the way 
in getting Oklahoma a win. So a remarkable turnaround. And, you know, that a lot of these numbers, I think, go into play when you start talking about Oklahoma compared to the rest of the country. And when you start talking about Oklahoma in the big picture of things and the college football playoff picture, and they start having these conversations about, for example, Oklahoma, Texas A&M. Let's just say that the number four spot is open and whatever scenario needs to happen for that to be the case, that, that becomes the case. If you're talking about a one-loss A&M team versus a two-loss Oklahoma team that is a conference champion, you know, that that's going to be something that they're going to argue both sides of. But when you're making the argument for Oklahoma, the argument has always been that they're not balanced, right? And, and certainly this year, the offense isn't even close to what it's been in years past. But they don't have to be every week. I mean, they, they are capable of being explosive, but if they're not, it's, it's not just a guaranteed L because the defense has been good enough to give them life. Now, I would also say that if Oklahoma were to match up with Alabama, I still think Alabama has a big day offensively. I still think they hit on big plays. I still think that they score a pretty healthy number against this Oklahoma defense. But I don't think it looks as easy and is as as much of a, a pillow fight from the Oklahoma defense as the LSU game was a year ago. So uh, I still think there is is room for this team to get better. But we've seen a remarkable jump, and that's something that's going to be in the conversations if Oklahoma finds themselves in that that crazy scenario where potentially they're up for debate against a, a Texas A&M, for example, or maybe even a Cincinnati. But those numbers mean something, I guarantee you, to that committee, what they're watching and how they're evaluating Oklahoma in the big picture. Speaking of the big picture, um, pretty much, you know, across the board, at least at the top of the college football playoff rankings, everybody took care of business. Alabama just continues to look unstoppable. They are a juggernaut offensively. You know, Najee Harris every week just looks like the best player on that Alabama offense. The re- the receiving core, even without Jalen Waddell, is unbelievably talented. Devontae Smith looks like the fastest guy on earth every time I see Alabama play. Uh, John Mechie, Mac Jones. I Look, Mac Jones doesn't strike me as a, a dynamic quarterback, and I'm not necessarily wowed by him as far as, like, the velocity that he throws the ball with or anything like that. But, and I hate using this term, but he's he's just a really, really good game manager. Like, he makes the right decisions. He puts the ball where it needs to be within that offense. And granted, there are a lot of times that guys are wide open, but how many times do we watch quarterbacks in college football miss those guys? So, you know, he's been accurate with his his passes. He's reading defense as well, and he's putting the ball where it needs to go. So, you know, he's been really good, and that Alabama offense just has so many weapons and a dominant offensive line. They are a juggernaut right now offensively, and, and I don't know that anybody is going to be able to slow them down. Uh, same thing for Notre Dame and Clemson on Saturday. Both teams, I think, had a little bit of a slow start but settled in and ended up running away with their games. I thought the Ohio State game was really important, not because Michigan State is good or anything like that, but when you start talking about Ohio State not playing as many games as everybody else, I think it's even more important for them to win impressively and to dominate their matchups. And when you also consider how many players Ohio State was without in this matchup to still dominate the way that they did on Saturday... I think just in, in terms of the narrative around Ohio State, that really helps them. That is really going to give them a big lift that not only did they win impressively, but they did it without all these players being a part of it. So 
Ohio State definitely helped themselves. Uh, I wasn't overly impressed with A&M against Auburn. Again, I, I think A&M's a good football team. I just don't think they're anywhere close to the same level as the teams that are ahead of them right now in that top four. Uh, and a lot of it is just the quarterback position. I, I just don't think that uh, Kellen Mond is the type of guy that's going to match all the playmakers that the top four has with Mac Jones and Ian Book and Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. So I think that's where the biggest gap is between A&M and the teams that are currently in the top four. And look, when you put Oklahoma in that category, um, you know, I, I, I would, I, I know he's had struggles and he's still young, but the upside of Spencer Rattler compa- compared to Kellen Mond, I, I give me Spencer Rattler all day long. And, and again, when you add what Oklahoma is defensively, um, I, I would take the Sooners there. We do have to talk about the Mormons and the Mullets. BYU, Coastal Carolina, for two weeks in a row, BYU has been among the headlines in college football. And this one's really funny to me. And I said this when the, the initial college football playoff ranking came out and BYU was at 14. First of all, I didn't think they had any chance of being in the top 10 going into that first ranking. Not because I don't like them or think they're any good, but because of their schedule. Nobody was going to award them the benefit of the doubt when they hadn't played a quality schedule. That, that is considered especially for group of five teams. Like, you can get away with it a little bit more as a Power Five conference, but if you're not playing Power Five opponents every week, you're just, I mean, you've got to have some good teams somewhere along the way to get some sort of gauge as to what your high end is. And BYU just really doesn't have that across the board. The Washington thing was interesting because Washington offers them a game. They turn it down. And I talked about this also a couple weeks ago. Regardless of what the circumstance was, and regardless of whether, you know, because I, I heard BYU was going to lose money if they decided to play that game, like lose a bunch of money. And obviously we understand the, the, the narrative around all college football programs and universities for that matter, athletic departments for that matter, losing money and how important it is because you may lose, you know, programs like a, like a cross-country program or a gymnastics program. Like we're seeing that at a crazy level across the board. So it's very easy, I think, for people to just say, well, go lose money and go play a football game, you know, for the sake of, of figuring out whether this is a good team or not. If BYU had beat Washington, then yeah, I mean, are they going to get jumped into the top 10? Without a doubt. Does that guarantee them a top four spot, though? I, I don't think it does. So I don't know. Take it for what it's worth. Here's the problem. Regardless of what the scenario was, the perception of that was that BYU was dodging Washington, that BYU didn't want to play a Power 5 school. And again, regardless of whether it was for other reasons or not, that's the way people are going to perceive it. So then, not only do you have a number 14 team in the country that's undefeated, that nobody really, not that they didn't believe in, but that they just have questions about how good they are because of competition, but then you add the doubt as to whether or not they didn't play Washington for the right reasons or they're trying to dodge a Power 5 school and maybe just hoping that they go undefeated the rest of the way and they get help and and maybe just somehow backdoor slide their way into one of those spots. But then all of a sudden they, they schedule Coastal Carolina. And this is what's really interesting to me is because neither team was going to win this game and all of a sudden jump up to number five, right? Like they're both as low as they are because everybody's questioning whether each of them is really good based on their schedules. So if you have two teams that were saying, okay, you're both undefeated, but we don't know how good you are because you haven't played anybody. And then you have those two teams play each other. Does that really accomplish anything? 
Like, I guess maybe if one team just beats the other team by like 80, then you're like, okay, well, that team's clearly just really good. But otherwise, like, I don't know that anybody's mind is going to be made up about Coastal Carolina or BYU in that game if, if it's just a normal football game. I don't think you walk away from that being like, you know what? I had Coastal Carolina at 18 last week because their schedule wasn't that great, but they beat BYU, so now they're one of the top five teams in the country. Like, I don't know. Maybe we'll see a, a decent jump. I would imagine that Coastal Carolina jumps, I don't know, I mean – 12 or 13, maybe. I, I, they're not, I, I would be shocked if they jumped all the way to the top 10 based on a win over BYU. Because again, if you have two teams that have question marks about each of them playing each other, I don't know that that really proves the point that they were both hoping it would, would be proved ultimately. So, uh, but, you know, credit Coastal Carolina. That was a fun game to watch, by the way. And Coastal Carolina gets it done. And uh, all of a sudden, again, they are uh, they are a headline in college football, and and everybody's going to be talking tomorrow all day long about where they land in the college football playoff rankings. As far as the NFL goes, how about Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns? All of a sudden, they find themselves at nine and three. Baker has really settled into the quarterback position in Cleveland. Looks like a completely different guy at this stage of the season than early, especially you know about a month in. I think people were ready to pull the plug, and I had Kyle Kelly on a few weeks ago who covers the Browns. And, and he was saying like three, four weeks into the season, there were a lot of people that were ready to end the Baker Mayfield in Cleveland experiment. We had a, a big conversation about the, the extra year on his contract and, and all of that. But uh, there's no doubt that Baker Mayfield has been terrific the last few weeks. I, I seriously wonder how much of this has to do with Odell Beckham Jr. Sometimes I think we're so quick to just assume that a guy like Odell Beckham Jr. enters the mix and, and people struggle and that he is the issue. But when you start to get a larger body of work that shows Baker Mayfield thriving without him versus what the guy looks like when he's really forcing the issue and Odell Beckham Jr. is in the lineup, uh, I think it's it's extremely relevant. It's something to pay attention to going forward, and, and I'll be really curious to see how the Browns front office handles the situation. But I saw the stat earlier today. Of all the quarterbacks in the NFL right now, the only one that hasn't thrown an interception in their last 150 attempts is Baker Mayfield. That's that's a crazy statistic, especially because early in the season, I mean, Baker was the the butt of all the interception jokes on social media. So, and I said this about a month ago as well, it felt like Baker Mayfield was trying too hard. Like he was trying to force the issue too much, trying too hard to make big plays happen. And, you know, again, I hate this term in football, game manager, because when you call somebody a game manager, it's almost like you're saying they're not very good and that they don't really have any skill other than not making mistakes, which I I don't think is completely fair, but I get that that's the perception of the term. But I said he needs to be a game manager simply because if you remove Baker Mayfield making the careless mistakes and you remove Baker Mayfield trying to make these big plays happen, and the run game has been terrific all season long, if you just allow him, because his arm ability is special, he is an elite talent throwing the football, because he's an elite talent that way, if you just allow the offense to run the way that it needs to run, to let the run game be the, the lead, and just make the throws when you need to make the throws, the offense is going to click at a high rate, but it just, you know, again, it felt like Baker Mayfield was just 
pressing really hard to try and make these big plays through the air as opposed to, you know, moving, just moving the football, taking the safe play, extending drives, letting the run game continue to wear defenses down. And then when you have your shots, you take them. And right now, Baker Mayfield looks as comfortable in that offense and as calm in that offense as we've seen him, I think, since his rookie year, right? Like, that was one of the biggest compliments I thought that that I gave Baker Mayfield as a rookie was just even in that setting, Cleveland, which is a complete has been a dumpster fire for decades, and the fact that they didn't have a ton of talent. The offensive line was an issue when he was a young guy. But that rookie season, like, he stepped into that position and looked like he was the leader, looked like the guy in charge, looked like a guy, even when things weren't going well, that was calm and collected and just had the ultimate belief in himself. And while I don't think that part of it has ever disappeared, I think we have seen him play rattled. I think we have seen him you know, try to play outside of himself. And all of a sudden, we're kind of getting the Baker Mayfield of old, the Baker Mayfield that we saw at Oklahoma, the Baker Mayfield that we saw for portions of his rookie season where he just looks comfortable. He, he looks unfazed by everything going on around him. And again, I hate to use the term game manager, but he's, he's playing the game manager role and he's playing it really well because he's an elite talent passing the football. When, when he has those opportunities, he's taking advantage of them. And, and the performance yesterday was just off the charts good and, and a big win for Cleveland in terms of just how legit they are. Not a lot of quality wins uh, as far as the resume goes, but here's the great thing about the NFL. This isn't a beauty contest. It's not a situation where the committee has to look at Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns and, and ask where the quality wins are. Your record dictates whether you're in the postseason, and the Browns are absolutely on the right track and headed that way. So, uh, you know, Baker Mayfield has been a tremendous story over this last month or so in the NFL. Uh, real quick, we have a Monday night doubleheader tonight. Uh, or this afternoon, I should say, 4 o'clock start for the Washington football team and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, Washington, the cream of the crop, maybe, in the NFC East, and uh, Pittsburgh trying to remain undefeated. By the way, I said a few weeks ago that I didn't think there were necessarily any big road bumps in the uh, path of the Pittsburgh Steelers running the table. All of a sudden, maybe that game against Cleveland at the end of the year is something that that uh, prevents Pittsburgh from pulling off the undefeated season. But uh, the nightcap tonight, Buffalo, San Francisco, 49er team that's just been devastated and beat up by injuries and and a Buffalo Bills team that is just kind of a wild card, right? Like never really know what you're going to get on a weekly basis, but uh, more more often than not, they find a way to to get a win and have themselves in in a pretty good position on the season. So uh, Monday night football, doubleheader, and then we have Cowboys-Ravens tomorrow night to end the NFL week. Not to mention the college football playoffs tomorrow night as well. So uh, getting ready to wrap up another week of the football season. All right, that is it for this episode of the Colby Daniels Podcast presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products. Visit their website, abotanicalcompany.com or give them a call, 405-458-9699. You can order online, easy and safe pickup. If you're not familiar with what their products are and how they can benefit your daily life, ask questions, educate yourself on what they have and how significantly it can improve the way you live on a daily basis. Artisan Botanicals, Midwest City, abotanicalcompany.com, or 405-458-9699. If you haven't done so already, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to hit me up as well, at Colby underscore Daniels on Twitter, Colby.Daniels on Instagram. Everybody stay safe, have a great day, and I will talk to you tomorrow.
the podcast is over.